0: If you're dealing with China, you need to think about it in the following way. I think the benefit for businesses is that if you could understand what's behind this geopolitical tension faster than your competitors, you can get to a place of agility first.
1: That's Craig Strongberg. Before leading PwC's intelligence team advising global and firm leadership on macroeconomic and geopolitical events, Craig worked in the U.S. intelligence community, focusing on issues surrounding China. This is Heather Horn, and thanks for joining me for the next episode of our Forecast 2021 podcast miniseries. China's talked about a great deal in the press, and a lot of businesses have questions. So, today we're getting down to the bottom line, clearing up some common misconceptions, and helping businesses figure out what's happening in China and what might happen next. So, Craig, thanks so much for joining me today. It's a very timely topic. This is something that actually came up on the podcast I did with Bob Maritz a couple of weeks ago in terms of what's going on in China. Before we get into the topics today, though, I thought it might be helpful for our audience to just better understand your background and actually how you got focused on this.
0: So that's probably useful, if nothing else, to lend hopefully a little credibility to what we have to talk about. So I have a very nonlinear path. To the firm. So I began life as a historian, and then I worked for the better part of 20 years for the US intelligence community. And I spent probably the last 10 years of that focused on one way or another on issues surrounding China. I left the government as a senior executive, really responsible for helping to coordinate an understanding of what China was doing with US companies positively and negatively, and then came to the firm, worked for the cyber practice for a while, kind of talking about the same things. And now I lead the team within the firm that advises global and firm leadership on macroeconomic and geopolitical events, not much different from what I used to do.
1: Wow. Very interesting and definitely does give good context for the conversation we're going to have today. So appreciate that. So Craig, before we get into some of the specifics, I know you you talked not only to our firm leadership, but to a lot of different companies about relations with China and what's going on in China. So before we get into details of what's top of mind for the CFOs and the C-suite, how can you set the stage for us?
0: So I think what's really important to think about is that China has talked about a great deal in the press and- We have more clients than we've ever had before that are trying to get an understanding from us about what is really happening in China, what is going to happen with the future of commerce between the United States and China, and what is really happening geopolitically in China. I think there is a lot of groupthink that is going on with a lot of the things that clients read. And I think hopefully today, part of what we can do is cut through all of that and try and get to some nice, clear bottom lines Because there is a lot of misunderstanding, I think, of this relationship. And that means that businesses aren't going to have an easy time going to one resource to figure out what is happening and what will happen.
1: All right. Well, I definitely want to come back to understand what some of those misunderstandings are. But let me have some specific questions for you first. I know one that's top of mind for me, and I'm sure for many of our listeners, is Obviously, we had a change in administration in January. I think we all saw the relationship between the US and China under the past administration. What do we expect to see? How's the change impacting the relationships?
0: So this is a key question, and it's one that a lot of people, not surprisingly, are, are asking us. So the bottom line here is that things are tense, but they are probably not as tense as they would be sitting here in April of 2021, if the election had gone a different way. And this assessment, by the way, is reinforced by the CEO survey that you talked about with Bob. Because if you look at the CEO survey, what the CEOs are telling us is that they are more optimistic about geopolitical tension, protectionism, and trade tension than they were last year. Remarkably different. You know, we'll see, you know, over the course of our conversation, if we come to a place of assessment that is in line with theirs, but it's very much what they're telling us. And for what it's worth, what American companies are telling us via the American Chamber of Commerce in China is exactly the same. They are more optimistic than they were even back in September and October. I think the phrase that I would like businesses to keep in mind here. And it's the one that the White House keeps using, is strategic competitor and strategic competition. One of those myths that is being talked about a lot in the press is that there is a Cold War that is emerging between China and the United States, which I don't think is true. Many of us lived through at least part of the Cold War, and we understand what that means, right? China and the US are not the US and the Soviet Union. We are fighting proxy wars across the world, we're not on the brink of nuclear catastrophe. And more importantly, our economies are dependent on one another. But what is really happening is that three forces are at play, tectonic forces, if you will, that are dominating the ground upon which policy and business is being done when it comes to the U.S. and China. So I think the first one is that China has arisen. It's not rising. It's not emerging. It has arisen as a diplomatic, an economic, a technological power. The second, there is a very strong and candidly very ugly anti-China feeling that has emerged in U.S. policy circles. And that is not just in government, that's in think tanks and academia who have a lot of groupthink about China being something that's really negative. And of course, that is unfortunately bleeding over into a lot of the anti-Asian American feeling that has been really important to talk about lately. And I think the third thing that's happening here is that the U.S. has lost global power. And President Biden himself acknowledges this. He acknowledged this from day one. The U.S. has lost some power. And it's going to take some time for us to gain back some of the influence that we used to have. I think when it comes to what's important for businesses, there's a couple of things. One is protectionist policies and regulations, many of them from previous administration, are still here. And if you look at all the things that the current administration has canceled from the previous administration, they've barely taken away anything that the Trump administration has done on protectionism. And particularly for technology, for aerospace and defense and industrial products, that's going to be really hard. The second is that there is talk, careful talk, about decoupling. That is the separation of the U.S. and Chinese economies. Again, I think there's less than there would have been if the election had gone a different way. But we should not be surprised if the U.S. government puts an emphasis on pharma and healthcare to reassure some of their manufacturing. And lastly, the unified approach of the Biden administration is very clear. You're going to hear everybody in this administration talk out of the same side of their mouths. I think the last thing, companies should remember that China is regularly painted with a very negative light in the media, but they are a rational actor. They very, very rarely act rashly. And they've made clear that they do not want to disengage from the U.S. But if disengagement is on the table, they will act first and they won't wait to be decoupled as a victim from the U.S. economy.
1: Craig, two questions before we go on, because you mentioned on the one hand, the optimism of CEOs, and then you mentioned on the other hand, this sort of anti-China sentiment that we're seeing from government and think tanks and others. And so I almost want to ask you how to reconcile those two, but maybe instead I'll ask you, where do you think those two different sort of almost seem opposing ideas are coming from?
0: I think it comes from How each of those various camps, right, the business leader camp and the political leader camp see their job. The business leader camp is looking at the world right now and saying, "Okay, bad as things may be with COVID, we probably have a chance for growth this year. And the best chance for us is if China and the U.S. can get along. And from where they stand here in April and from where they stood when they took the CEO survey, things look better than they did. So I think from their point of view, there's cause for optimism.
1: And sorry, let me pause you. When you say they look better, it's not just the pandemic that looks better, but you're saying even the change in administration and other factors such as that look better, or it's just this overall optimism coming from maybe the pandemics behind us?
0: It's in part the administration, but I think it's also the fact that you can't decouple the economic recovery from the public health recovery. So the fact that there is some recovery from COVID, especially in the United States, is increasing their optimism that there will be a faster economic recovery. And as the U.S. recovers faster economically, the world will recover faster economically and open up new markets. So I think from their point of view, that's how they're seeing things right now. Their optimism meter went up. I think from a policymaker point of view, they're seeing things a little differently. They are seeing a United States that has lost some credibility. And that's not just because of the last four years, by the way. This has been happening for a long time, going back to the financial crisis. And they are seeing China act very quickly to develop relationships and gain business and act very fast on the technological front. And they aren't sure how to react So there is a default reaction to let's all get together and agree that we at least don't like the Chinese and let's agree on that. And then they sort of stop. There's no policy that follows behind it. So their optimism meter is not very high.
1: Well, and then it perpetuates itself, right? Because if you have one saying it, then someone else thinks, oh, maybe I'll put the same lens. And then that kind of continues itself,
0: right? It does. It is a very dangerous thing for any of us to be making this about this being us General relations, a war between systems. If we do that, I think it's advantage China, because China doesn't need to go ask the Politburo for $2 trillion for infrastructure. It can just spend We do, right? We have a different system. We have advantages on our side too. And we need to be accentuating those advantages. And frankly, a lot of those advantages stem from business agility. So I think as you look at those two points of view between the business leaders and the global leaders and the political leaders, I'm happy that those CEOs and business leaders are more optimistic. I think it counts.
1: That's important. So then the other point you made is that China acts rationally. How does that fit in? Does it mean that if you do X, you could expect China will do Y? Or when you think about that concept that they act rationally, what lens are you putting on that?
0: So I tend to put a lens on this. And here, you know, unfortunately, I'm going to sort of have to default to my days as a historian. I tend to sort of look, as historians often did during the Cold War, at the decisions that China is making and the US is making through three lenses. Those which are wise, those which are prudent, and those which are foolish. Wise decisions are those which are grounded in good policy and doctrine. Prudent decisions are those that might be a little risky, but over time, they're probably going to pay off. And foolish decisions are exactly the ones that they sound like. I think for the US right now, there is some wise decision-making going on. There is a whole of government approach to China. They've assigned very senior people to the most important positions that deal with China. And they've added new capabilities to the National Security Council and the State Department that will negotiate with China. There are some prudent decisions, which again, may be risky, but probably wind up being wise in the long run, like not eliminating the Trump era restrictions on Chinese trade yet, at least because we may be able to trade them in deals and potentially reshoring some manufacturing out of China. But there's also some foolish decision-making going on. We just touched on one of these, which is making everything a battle of systems between democracy and communism. Regardless of whether or not that's true, it's a distraction from the argument, and it doesn't help educate those who need to understand this better. Now, if you look at China, they're making some pretty wise decisions too. They are greatly expanding their diplomatic program around the world. They often are quiet when their adversaries are loud, and they do a lot of that these days. And they are keeping their population happy and well-educated and upwardly mobile, which is the key to their survival. They're making some prudent decisions, like investing in the Belt Road Initiative, their massive infrastructure program, which gets a lot of bad press, but is building new markets for the Chinese abroad. So as businesses try and sort out what's what with China, this is a sort of a framework that they might use, you know, trying to understand things that are wise and prudent and foolish,
1: Obviously, if I'm a U.S. company thinking about supply chain, China's not in isolation. I'm thinking about the whole region, a lot of supply chain there. And there has been discussion in the press of the idea of vaccine diplomacy. And, you know, China's really making good ties in that region by giving its vaccine, et cetera, obviously U.S. Is taking a different approach. So if I'm a company thinking about trade with the broader region, how does this different approach maybe to the pandemic impact that or the fact that China's maybe cementing some relationships there? Or is that you know each country really needs to be viewed differently?
0: I think each country really needs to be viewed differently. What I think can generally be said about the potential markets in which clients are interested, right? Especially ASEAN, which is the 10 country block in Southeast Asia. They want to be their own markets. They don't want to be a subset of China and they don't want to be a subset of the United States. They don't want to have to choose. I think. One of the things that Americans, though, often are really bad at is geography. And geography matters because administrations can come and go in Washington, but Vietnam is going to wake up tomorrow and it's going to wake up in 2167 and it's still going to be next door to China. The advantage there is that they've been next door to China for a long time, and they know how to deal with the Chinese. But one of the things that the Chinese do well is that when the Chinese establish a trading relationship with a new country, they don't particularly care about the governance of that country. Whether you are a democracy or a republic or a monarchy or a dictatorship, they don't care. Can they do business with you or not? The United States comes from a different value set, and we do care. And I think we should care, but it makes the conversations different. But overall, the region is going to try very hard not to be pulled one way or another. I think what American businesses really need to think about, though, is that a lot of the questions that we get is, are there alternatives to China for manufacturing in the region? And the answer is, yes, but. So there are, but this is where China's scale comes into play. Because China's skilled labor population is immense. And if you want to try and move your manufacturing to Indonesia or Vietnam or the Philippines, you can, but the the skilled labor pool is A, much smaller, and B, probably already spoken for. So before you start to pull out of China, make sure that you start to understand if you could actually get somebody to build the things you want to build in the Indochina region, because that's going to be part of the problem for a lot of clients that want to move around.
1: Well, I think that's a good lead in then back to another comment you mentioned, which is this idea of decoupling the US economy and the Chinese economy, and the fact that maybe there'll be a push to repatriate some manufacturing back to the US. So, how does that fit in as well to this conversation?
0: So, we all lived through last year. And look, we, the government, businesses were surprised by how fragile the medical goods supply chain was. Understandable to a degree because nobody had anticipated that everybody in the world, literally every single country would need masks all at once. And if you don't anticipate that, you can't be ready. What that means is that I think it's going to be really hard for the government in the United States not to try and figure out how to at least get some of the businesses that manufacture those type of goods back into the United States or at least geographically proximate to the United States. Now, how they're going to do that is up for question. And is the policy making that is going to be defining the sweeteners going to be enough? I'm not sure about that. And I don't know that we're going to definitively know for a while, but I am sure that is on the minds of people in the White House is at least in case this happens again, we're not going to be shorthanded in that type of goods. I think there is a flip side, though, which is that there are a lot of American businesses, especially in the technology sector, who are really worried about existing regulations that have been made in the last 24 months that are keeping them from potentially selling to huge clients in China because of new technology export control. We are talking about hundreds of billions of dollars of revenue for U.S. businesses, especially in the technology sector, that could be cut off if the U.S. government decides to go further, and they may go further.
1: And when you say they may go further, I was trying to jump ahead to why they would want to do that, and is it from a military perspective that we want to protect technology, or is it a trade lever to use? Why would we go in that direction?
0: Part of it is because we are concerned I should say the U.S. government is concerned that some products do support the buildup of the Chinese military. I think overall, the concern in Washington is that U.S. technology is enabling what is already a very strong attempt by China to gain global technology leadership. I think the way to understand this for businesses is that they have to imagine two runners on a track. And when it comes to technology leadership, We have been ahead on that track by laps and laps and laps for so long that nobody's ever really come up to challenge us. Every year that has gone by, China is getting a little closer and a little closer. I don't know that they're about to lap us, but they can see us. And that is a known known in Washington. And I think they want to avoid that. I think they want to keep the U.S. preeminent in technology. And they may, unfortunately... Force U.S. businesses to forego that revenue if they feel that the U.S. is going to suffer from a national security perspective.
1: So, Craig, you also mentioned the incentives to repatriate manufacturing. And would some of that then be with potential what's happening from a tax policy perspective? Would that be the main tool there or are there other tools administration has to incentivize companies to bring some of that back into the United States or maybe into the North American region?
0: Tax policy is definitely a huge part of this. And I think you'd see a a lot of that at play. But I think part of what is important here is that the pandemic has allowed very sleepy parts of the U.S. government in terms of regulation, like the Defense Production Act, which very rarely get used but are very powerful to come into motion. And there are incentives that the government could use to offer direct investment in reshoring some of this that it may not have thought about. In decades. Now, I think what we are going to have to see is is the government going to be innovative in bringing those things to light, which might be much more of a sweetener for business if the government's going to bear some of the real cost? Or is it only going to be the things that they can do through tax policy? I think those are the two far ends of the spectrum. I don't want to make an assessment about where things are going to land because we haven't heard it yet from the White House. But there's a lot that could be done at a time when the government is spending a lot of money pretty freely.
1: And then, Craig, this isn't directly on point, but it's related to the supply chain question. I think you highlighted that the pandemic highlighted the issues and sort of how fragile the supply chain can be. But this most recent incident with the ship and the Suez Canal, I think also was a good reminder that supply chains are, you know, there's individual pieces and something goes wrong and it can impact an entire supply chain. So, again, if I'm a company thinking supply chain, how do those pieces fit together?
0: So unfortunately, there are still parts of the global trading network that are single points of failure. The canals, right? Panama and Suez, the Dardanelles out of the Black Sea, they're right across Gibraltar into Morocco. There are still choke points that matter. And if something goes wrong, which it rarely does, everything grinds to a halt, I think what's interesting about this is that even if you think back to the beginning of the pandemic, when global shipping also came to a halt, because there was no set of regulations yet, right, country by country, that allowed a ship that was leaving Hong Kong and supposed to be arriving in France to understand, could the crew get off? Could you even transfer boxes off of the ship? One of the only parts of the global supply chain that worked was the Belt and Road Initiative built train link from China to Europe, the longest train link in the world, right? It takes two weeks. But that bit of infrastructure kept goods flowing from China to Europe, including medical goods. And I think part of what you are seeing in Washington in terms of the infrastructure bill isn't just to give a boom to the economy. It's because we don't have the ability to do what China does. We don't have, just within the United States, extraordinarily resilient transportation networks that can at least support the part of the supply chain that exists within the U.S. Globally, supply chain is more complicated. And it's complicated by the fact that globalization is increasingly a four-letter word in many places. And as the CEOs in the CEO survey rightly pointed out, populism is still a problem. And populists generally don't like globalization. So you add that to the fact that globally, countries have never, since before the Second World War, been less effective at solving complex problems like global supply chains than they are now. And frankly, we just went through and are still going through a historic event that should have been the catalyst for a new genesis of global cooperation. And by and large, it's not happening. So countries aren't working together to solve these problems. And so it's going to remain a bit brittle.
1: And that's because of nationalism?
0: I think it's because, well, it's for a bunch of reasons, right? But geopolitically, at least, the type of multilateral solutions that used to solve big complex problems like global supply chains, you need to have good faith between different countries. And you need to have institutions that can take that good faith and turn it into policy. But if you look at the institutional framework that we helped create and lead after World War II, from the UN to multiple multilateral institutions, it's all slowing down. And what it means is that there aren't a lot of guardrails. And so if you want to improve the global supply chain network, it's very difficult, in the United States at least, for the US-China dynamic not to poison that because of all the negativity surrounding it. When objectively, it would be nice if we could offload that responsibility to a multinational group who all agreed we need to solve this problem. And we need new agreements and new standards and possibly even major new infrastructure programs that we would all contribute to that could potentially undo this type of bottleneck in the future. But that basic geopolitical plumbing isn't there.
1: Well, you just took us full circle back to the start of the Cold War, it sounds like, because that's where this all started. So that actually might be a good segue for me to get us back on track with some of my more China specific questions. Although I can keep asking you more overall uh, geopolitical questions. But if I'm a business, and so now I've listened to this and I'm thinking, what else does this all mean from my business perspective? back to the relationship between the US and China. What does this mean if I'm thinking about my business and how I should be approaching this?
0: I think it means a few things. You need to understand that the protectionist environment, that is to say protectionist policy, particularly in the United States, is here to stay for a while. And A lot of it is because of U.S.-China tension. And what that comes down to is really three things in the eyes of U.S. protectionist regulators. It's critical infrastructure, which is not always clearly defined. Critical technologies, which are not always clearly defined, but effectively are all the technologies that underpin the Fourth Industrial Revolution. And it's data, especially data on American consumers and American citizens. And if you are trading in one of these three areas... If you offer solutions and services in one of these three areas, then how you deal with them globally is going to be very carefully watched by U.S. regulators, and there's going to be even more protectionism in this area. Now, the, the con here is that for businesses that want to try and deal with China, it's going to make harder for the Chinese to invest. You know, Only four years ago, the Chinese were investing close to $50 billion a year in the United States. Last year, they invested $4 billion. So protectionism is having an effect. I think the pro for businesses is that if you're dealing with other countries, Japan, you know, Europe, Australia, those countries may have even more opportunity to invest because they're probably going to get a green light as fast as China's getting a red light. So I think the second thing to keep in mind is that policymaking in Washington is very likely to be aggressive in terms of making... The geopolitical uncertainty that we are feeling part of the permanent environment that businesses have to operate in. And if we go back not too far into our recent business past, there was a lot of expectation that a a business leader could have at the beginning of the year that I think I know what's going to happen this year. It's not going to be a roller coaster. And it certainly isn't going to be a ride where there's always a lot of tension. Well, that's the ride we're on. And it's the ride we're going to be on for a while, unfortunately. So the con for businesses there is that there's less global certainty than a lot of businesses would like. I think the benefit for businesses is that if you could understand what's behind this geopolitical tension faster than your competitors, you can get to a place of agility first. And I think the last thing that I would say is that and we talked on this already, so I don't think we need to really go into it a lot, is that U.S.-China trade tension is putting entire industries at risk, especially technology. And I'd like to say that there's an upside to that. I, I don't see one. This is something that is real concern to those sectors and industries. And it's not something that they're going to be able to relax about anytime soon because this president and the next president and the one after that are going to be watching how U.S. technology is exported globally from now on with a much stronger government hand than they've ever had before.
1: So I have a two part question. Obviously, so many moving parts. And, you know, when we think about if I do this, then what the impact is going to be. So do you think there are the right people in the U.S. government to, I'll say, solve some of these problems? And will they be able to do that without a lot of the sort of partisanship or bipartisanship that we've seen impacting so much from a policy perspective? I absolutely
0: think that the best people to solve this problem are the people who are being appointed. And I say that not from a partisan point of view, but just from an experience point of view. So it's always interesting when there's a new administration to see who's going to get appointed. And sometimes you wish they would appoint some new people to give those people an opportunity. That's not really the route in most cases that President Biden went. He went with proven longtime people like Blinken and Yellen. But they are being joined by newer people like Catherine Tai, who's the U.S. trade representative. The common denominator between all of these people is that they all have dealt with China. They all understand it, and they are all going to be working from a vastly improved U.S. government focus on China. So I think the right people are in place. Where things get more complicated is when you jump from the executive branch to the congressional branch, and from the congressional branch back to the executive. When both of those parts of the government are going to have to come up with China policy together it's gonna become more partisan.
1: So let's, for this purpose of this discussion, let's assume with the right people in place and even with this dynamic that we'll we'll see more of the wise and prudent decisions that you talked about. So now I'm a CFO of a company and I've been listening to this. And even though we've just skimmed the surface, it's so obvious there's a huge amount to understand here. If you are advising a CFO, how do you advise them? What what do they need to understand, particularly if their company is either trading with China or supply chain in that region, and or even for someone who's not, but maybe their business is being impacted by that?
0: Look, the first one is they need to understand the protectionist landscape and really how much it has changed, how much it has been strengthened, and how much power regulatory Elements that do protectionism policy, like the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, CFIUS, really have, and how they can impact their business if they're dealing with critical technology, critical infrastructure, or data, which pretty much every business in some way is. So that's one. I think the other is to understand what is really happening at the heart of U.S.-China tension. And that means ignoring things like the meeting that just happened in Alaska. Which are pure theater and really looking at what are the results of US China tension? Are things getting better or worse? And you'll know that because there's either agreements being made and dialogue happening, or there are agreements that are falling apart and people are yelling at one another from Beijing to Washington. So you don't need a high level of China acumen to see that. It will be evident. But anybody who's dealing with China, especially those businesses in China whether that is a manufacturing operation or just a front office. The thing that we haven't talked about yet is that they really need to understand the data and cyber landscape in China. And that over the last few years, the Chinese have dramatically changed the data, digital, and cyber regulatory landscape in China. And part of this is because their economy developed so quickly that it outran governance, it outran regulation, that Chinese tech giants sprouted up before the Chinese government had the ability to monitor them. And now they're just catching up the social credit system, which is part of this regulatory maze in China that, and this is a good example, Heather, of where the U.S. press lets businesses down. It has been displayed in the U.S. as something that evaluates Chinese individuals almost like a shaming device. If they don't pay their credit card bills, they're not allowed to board trains, etc. And that's kind of true, but what the social credit system is really there to do is to give scores to both companies, including U.S. companies that operate in China, and individual corporate officers. And if you don't act in accordance with certain regulations, you will be blacklisted. So it's a very complex regulatory environment. And often businesses that have been in China or dealing with China for a long time have not yet caught up to their understanding of this real complexity. I I think last thing, if you're dealing with China, you need to think about it in the following way, potentially. And that is both as a market, as a partner, and as a competitor. And the ratio that your relationship is in those three buckets is going to be different for every business, every industry and it's going to change over time. You may be more of a partner now with China and more of a competitor later, but you really have to understand to what degree and what percentage is China just a market or a market and a partner or a market and a partner and a competitor. And if you can understand that, you can understand all the noise that's coming out of Beijing and Washington better.
1: And then again, if I'm a CFO and I'm thinking about best practices from other companies and maybe dealing with the complexity of some of these issues, what are some thoughts that you would have?
0: Part of this is understanding what your fellow companies are going through. And that is a good reason to understand what things like the American Chamber of Commerce in China are saying and what some of the American Chamber of Commerce localities like Shanghai and Beijing are saying, because they give us a window into what American companies are all having a problem with that they may be resonant to talk about with one another. I think the other one is that they need to understand China's point of view. The more that a company can demonstrate to China that they understand their point of view, the smoother trade is going to go. And I think another thing is that if you really think about the geopolitical and macroeconomic relationship between the US and China, we have to be prepared that it's going to be unsettled for a while. And so having a mechanism by which you as a CFO can understand how that is going to be impacting your bottom line is really important. And relying on open media alone is probably not enough you don't have a reliable source to understand the level of geopolitical and macroeconomic risk, it's going to be very hard for you to do strategic economic planning.
1: And if I needed this type of information, where is the best place to at least start to go look? Part
0: of where I would start is with foundational documents from the U.S. government. And this includes unclassified assessments that the U.S. intelligence community provides every year, But also, on a more tactical level, the indictments that the Department of Justice has given in the past in terms of economic espionage and data theft, these are often written in a way as instruction manuals for companies to understand how their data is stolen, how cyber attacks happen, and how a misunderstanding of the geopolitical environment could lead to certain types of risk.
1: You know, it's interesting. You talked about the open press. And I think even this conversation, we've only skimmed the surface, but clearly demonstrates how much there is behind the headlines. And reading the headlines, you can see there's a huge amount of complexity. But this gives a lot more context. So Craig, final question, and this is going to require you to use your crystal ball. So if we were to fast forward, and now we're getting ready for the next presidential election, so it's 2024, then what would you expect to see in terms of the U.S.-China relationship?
0: Look, in 2024, I think U.S.-China tension is probably going to be about the same level. It might even be elevated a little bit because of what hopefully will be effective decision-making in washington as you've noted right three years also puts us right inside the presidential run-up which means that rhetoric about china will be negative on both sides so the tension will be added to by that i think the other thing that's coming as we get closer to the end of the 2020s is that china's going to get closer to on paper anyway Displacing the U.S. as the world's largest economy, which will cause huge political panic in Washington. I think less so in other places in the country, but it will be a major political groundbreaking when that happens. I would expect that the Chinese are probably going to be a bigger global player, especially in the Middle East and Africa. Than they already are. I think they're laying the groundwork for that now. But the other thing is that I would expect that both the United States and China will have explored to a limited degree how to live without the other, how to do some production without the other. And I think for China, this is based on how do you substitute getting U.S. technology for those that they can get elsewhere or make their own. And for the U.S., this gets back to the reshoring discussion that we had. I don't think that's going to be full-scale decoupling, but I think as we look back three years hence, each side is going to have played with it enough that they can be confident that if they had to accelerate it, they could.
1: All right. Well, definitely sounds like we're looking ahead to an interesting few years. So Craig, fascinating discussion, and I really appreciate all your insights.
0: Thank you very much for having me Other, I'm honored. Thank you
1: that does it for today. If you enjoyed this episode, then keep an eye out for more shows from us on geopolitics. We have a lot of great episodes in the works, so stay tuned. And don't forget to join me back here every Tuesday and Thursday for new podcast episodes. Next Tuesday, we have a timely episode for you on the ISB and FASB Goodwill projects. And we're not just talking about amortization. So that you never miss an episode of any of our audio content, follow the PwC Accounting Podcast Series wherever you listen to your podcasts. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved.